listening to Bridging the Gap radio show with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, coming to you live from Columbia, South Carolina, bringing you hard-hitting topics, leaders in the community, businessmen and women, and faith leaders that are making a difference. If you're a bridge builder and you would love to get your story heard on this network, Never Had It So Good Gospel 107 FM and Never Had It So Good Sports Network, contact us at hjvharmon at gmail.com or kingdombookinggift at gmail.com or sclovefellowship at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I want to welcome you to a special edition of Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. This week, this weekend, we are celebrating, commemorating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I oftentimes think of him and I think of the man, uh, the myth, and the movement. That is the title for today's special edition, our tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King. Throughout most of our lifetimes, those of us that weren't necessarily around when he was around and and those that have come around since then learned about him in history, studied him during this time of the year, and especially in Black, um, February for Black History Month, um, we have often been bombarded, as it were, with his I Have a Dream speech. Um, it is considered his most famous speech. Um, and we have literally been raised um, to recite that speech, to memorize that speech, to unpack that speech, to talk about what that speech means to most of us, if not all of us. Um, in this particular tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King, however, I am not going to focus on I Have a Dream. I'm going to focus on some of his other less famous speeches, but I believe speeches that nevertheless highlighted where his heart was, where his core belief stood, and what he was trying to accomplish, not just for African Americans, but for America in general. Today's broadcast, today's program, Bridging the Gap, the tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King entitled The Man, the Myth, the Movement, we're going to focus our discussions around three of his speeches, or rather excerpts of three of his speeches, and we're going to conclude with an excerpt of a fourth speech. The first speech we want to unpack, talk about, discuss, um, lift some themes from is a speech he gave in 1967 at a junior high school, Barrett Junior High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, actually on October 26, 1967. He attended Barrett Junior High School to give a speech. I understand how I could imagine how those students felt having Dr. Martin Luther King in their presence, giving them a speech. And that speech was entitled, What is Your Life's? blueprint. We're going to play a short exit from that speech. We're going to lift some themes from that speech to talk about today, but I want you to sit with your tent doors open, as we say at church, and receive this very short excerpt from what is life's, what is your life's blueprint by Dr. Martin Luther King. 
when he spoke to Barrett Junior High School students back in October 26, 1967. I want to ask you a question, and that is, what is in your life's blueprint. This is the most important and crucial period of your lives for what you do now and what you decide now at this age may well determine which way your life shall go. And whenever a building is constructed, you usually have an architect who draws a blueprint. And that blueprint serves as the pattern, as the guide, as the model for those who are to build the building. And a building is not well erected without a good, sound, and solid blueprint. Now, each of you is in the process of building the structure of your lives. And the question is whether you have a proper a solid and a sound blueprint. And I want to suggest some of the things that should be in your life's blueprint. Number one in your life's blueprint should be a deep belief in your own dignity, your own worth, and your own somebodyness. Don't allow anybody to make you feel that you are nobody. Always feel that you count. Always feel that you have worth. And always feel that your life has ultimate significance. Now that means that you should not be ashamed of your color. You know, it's very unfortunate that in so many instances, our society has placed a stigma on the Negro's color. You know, there are some Negroes who are ashamed of themselves, don't be ashamed of your color. Don't be ashamed of your biological features. Somehow you must be able to say in your own lives and really believe it, I am black but beautiful. And believe it in your heart. We're calling all artists, authors, event planners, community leaders with a compelling story and those interested in being guest columnists in the Carolina's newest lifestyle magazine, Restore, our mantra is living 
loving and making moves the kingdom way. Get promoted, marketed and published in this new magazine at the best rates in the business. Restore Magazine is offered in both print and digital formats. Email us at kingdombookandgift at gmail.com. All one word, kingdombookandgift, all lowercase, at gmail.com. All spelt out, kingdombookandgift at gmail.com for details and an advertising quote. Again, we're calling all artists, authors, event planners, business leaders, community leaders, faith leaders with a compelling story and those interested in being guest columnists in the Carolina's newest lifestyle magazine, the Restore Magazine, where our mantra is living, loving, and making moves the kingdom way, get promoted, marketed, and published in this new magazine at the best rates in the business. Restore Magazine, again, is offered in both print and digital formats. Email us at kingdombookinggift at gmail.com for details and an advertising Welcome back. You're listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. We're doing a special edition tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the weekend in which we commemorate his birth, his life, his accomplishments, his achievements, and the work that he did to make life better, not just for people of color here in the United States, but for the nation as a whole. We just listened to an excerpt from his speech, What is Your Life's Blueprint? Dr. Martin Luther King was speaking to some youngsters at Barrett Junior High School, October 26, 1967, in the city of Philadelphia. And he opened his speech talking about the need for everyone he was addressing to have a blueprint for their lives. Those of us that understand what blueprints are, blueprints are plans. They are schematic drawings of how a house or a building or structure ought to look like. Um, It's drawn to scale. It's drawn um, with precision. It's drawn using special instrumentation to make sure that the designer or the contractor working alongside the architect um, will work to produce something that matches the drawing. Martin Luther King asked the audience, this, these, this audience of youngsters, what were their life's blueprint, blueprint, blueprint and what it would look like? And he started with, The first point he made, he said, your blueprint must include a deep belief in your own dignity, your own worth, your own somebody-ness. That's the term he used. I'm sure he used that term because he was talking to young people. He wanted to impress on them that even though they were young, even though they were considered children, even though they were considered naive, even though they were considered uh, diminished in wisdom and understanding that they had value. He, he tops it off by saying you need to be proud and literally and say to yourself, I'm black and I'm beautiful. And that your life has ultimate significance. The reason I lifted that first speech 
life's blueprint is because although he was addressing youngsters, although he was addressing children, I think his speech is still reticent to us as a people at large, because many of us are still stuck in the big eyes, little use kind of mindset. We're stuck like that, not only in the church, in ministry, but we're stuck like that in our communities. Unfortunately, we don't think that everybody is essential. We don't think that everybody is valuable. And the tragedy of it all is sometimes the person we think is not essential or valuable is not outside of us. It's us. We look at the accomplishments and the achievements of others and what others have, where they have graduated from, the degrees that they have, the jobs that they hold, the cars that they drive, the neighborhoods that they live in, the homes in which they live, um, even the lawns out front of their homes. And we start to measure ourselves in comparison to them. And when we see that the things that we have or the things that we don't have do not add up to the things that these other people have, we unfortunately, voluntarily, unintentionally devalue and diminish ourselves. And we don't have a deep belief in our own dignity, in our own worth, and we don't think that we're anybody. But Martin Luther King tells us, Your blueprint for life, your plan, your schematic drawing for which you want to build out your future life has to include a deep belief in your own dignity. Where does that come from? A deep belief in your own dignity does not come from inside of you. Because I learned a long time ago, if you just search on the inside of you for all the answers in life, you will ultimately come to a cul-de-sac, a dead end, and never get the answers that you desire. But the answer is not outside of you and other people. The answer is outside of you in a greater force, in a greater being, in a greater personhood, and that personhood is God. Dr. Martin Luther King was not just a civil rights leader. He was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a spiritual leader. He lived according to a moral compass, which we'll hear about a little later in some of the other excerpts, that drove him to a place where he believed in striving towards excellence in life. That's where the whole idea of this myth of a man comes to to bear. Martin Luther King was no myth. He was a man, just like me and you. Man meaning a human being. He he struggled. He, He had pains. He had issues. He had some challenges. He, he, he had to deal. He wasn't superhuman. He had to deal with the, some of the same shortcomings that we had to deal with. Just a small thing of being small in stature. He was small in stature, but he was great in power, presence, courage. So he, there was nobody else better to communicate the idea of not allowing what I see in myself to be the defining um, quality in the value of who I am. He had a deep belief in his own dignity. That's why he walked with his head up. That's why he dressed the way that he dressed. 
That's why he carried himself the way that he carried himself. That's why he strove the way that he strove academically. That's why, that's why he was a young man with degrees under his belt and was not ashamed to go after even more. And I want to challenge you wherever you are in, the, in January 2022. You may have gone through a rough 2021, a rough 2020 a rough 2019 and each new year comes upon you and you feel as though it's not getting any better. It's it's really getting worse. Imagine Martin Luther King walking in his shoes just for a little bit, dealing with the things that he dealt with, knowing where he came from, seeing the slow march toward progress that he that he saw and witnessed. And the fact that he died as young as he did, not even seeing all that he believed for come to pass before he died. And I challenge you to know that it may look and seem like if nothing has changed, but it has. But I'm also here to tell you, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. But you've got to start with your blueprint before The architects, or rather before the contractors start to build, they have to study the blueprint. Before they even dig a foundation, they have to study the blueprints. Before they start to erect anything, they have to study the blueprints because they have to find, and the blueprints are so detailed, the blueprints tell you what materials you can and cannot use. It tells you what dimensions those materials need to be. There are blueprints that go as far as telling you what electrical wiring that needs to be included, what what air conditioning vents need to be included in the structure. Everything that is vital to the finished product is included in the blueprint. But it's included in a schematic drawing. It is included as an image It is not the tangible substantive thing. It's just an image of what that thing would ultimately be. So having dignity, having self-worth, feeling that you're somebody may not be tangible, but they're necessary for the substance that you're planning and striving to become. Again, you're listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. This is our tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're just listening to some of his speeches. We're just sharing um, some themes from those speeches. I I just want to reflect, give you some opinions, sitting on my soapbox a little today, just to reflect and talk about how far we've come since Dr. Martin Luther King and how far are we yet to go. Again, you're listening to Bridging the Gap. Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. We'll be right back after this. Are you an author? Someone inspired to write a book? Walking around with book ideas either in your head or in a collection of notebooks? Maybe you're a preacher with a sermon series that you believe could be turned into a book. Or you're an individual with a compelling story to tell and you just don't know where to start. You can start with this information-filled one-hour Zoom class called Pathway to Publishing. This is a one-hour course presented by a published author, owner of a subsidy publishing firm in Columbia, South Carolina, 
but serving clients from the West Coast to the East Coast and abroad for over 15 years with publishing services and book distribution and marketing assistance. Hugh J. Harmon, yours truly of Kingdom Book and Gift LLC, has been serving as a Christian-owned publishing house catering to the needs of over 20 authors. Many of them are repeat customers with multiple publications. Kingdom Book and Gift LLC also publishes a lifestyle magazine entitled Restore. If you have an idea, we have the resources and expertise to make your idea a reality in both print and ebook formats. Join us on Saturday, January 22nd at 11 a.m. for a special Pathway to Publishing seminar. We have only 25 slots. It will be hosted on Zoom, and the price is a non-refundable $50, of which 50% can be applied to a publishing package with KBNG LLC Publishers. Find out the key steps needed to get your book ready for publishing and for being introduced to the world. Again, join us on Saturday, January 22nd at 11 a.m. for a special Pathway to Publishing seminar on Zoom. We only have 25 slots. It will be hosted on Zoom, and the price is a non-refundable $50, of which 50% can be applied to a publishing package with KBNG LLC Publishers. Find out the key steps needed to get your book idea turned into a reality and introduced to the world. Um, you're listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon for our Martin Luther King Jr. Tribute Weekend show. And to, for this segment of the show, we're going to lift up and listen to an excerpt from a speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave at the University of California in LA, UCLA in 1965, April 27th, 1965. He addressed students and the faculty at UCLA. And the title of this particular speech is Creative Maladjustment. Again, it is talking to students um, and educators again, but this time at the collegiate level this time on the West Coast in, in Southern California. And his topic is creative maladjustment. I want you to listen carefully to what Dr. Martin Luther King is saying. And I want you to draw a line from 1965, April 27, to January 2022. And I want you to tell me if... And this is a rhetorical question, obviously, rhetorical response. If what Martin Luther King Jr. is saying in this speech is still reticent and relevant, even in our time. Here he is, Martin Luther King. The future of integration. Now, there are some people who feel that we aren't making any progress. There are some people who feel that we are making overwhelming progress. I would like to take what I consider a realistic position and say that we have come a long, long way in the struggle to make justice and freedom a reality in our nation, but we still have a long, long way to go. And it is this realistic position that I would like to use as a basis for our thinking together. Now let us notice first that we've come a long, long way. 
And in order to illustrate this, a little history is necessary. You will remember that it was in the year 1619 when the first Negro slaves landed on the shores of this nation. They were brought here from the soils of Africa. Unlike the Pilgrim Fathers who landed at Plymouth a year later, they were brought here against our wills. And throughout slavery, the Negro was treated in a very inhuman fashion. He was a thing to be used, not a person to be respected. The famous Dred Scott decision of 1857 well illustrated the status of the Negro during slavery. For in this decision, the Supreme Court of our nation said in substance that the Negro is not a citizen of the United States, he is merely property subject to the dictates of his own. And it went on to say that the Negro has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. The slavery grew and developed. It became necessary to give some justification for it. It seems to be a fact of life that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually reaching out for some thin rationalization to clothe an obvious wrong in the beautiful garments of righteousness. And this is exactly what happened during the period of slavery. Even religion and the Bible were misused in order to justify slavery and crystallize the patterns of the status quo. And so from some pulpits, it was argued that the Negro was inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Then the Apostle Paul's dictum became a watchword, servants be obedient to your master. And then one brother had probably read the logic of the great philosopher Aristotle. You know, Aristotle did a great deal to bring into being what we now know as formal logic and philosophy. And in uh, formal logic, there's a big word called the syllogism, which has a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. So this brother decided to put his argument for the inferiority of the Negro in the framework of an Aristotelian syllogism. He came out with his major premise, all men are made in the image of God. Then came his minor premise, God, as everybody knows, is not a Negro, therefore the Negro is not a man. This was the kind of reasoning that prevailed. Well, living with the conditions of slavery and then later segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and many came to feel that perhaps they were inferior. Perhaps they were less than human. But then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression. And so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. Even his economic life was gradually rising through the growth of industry, the 
influence of organized labor, expanded educational opportunities, even his cultural life was rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. All of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. Negro masses all over began to reevaluate themselves. And the Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image and that the basic thing about a man is not his specificity but his fundamental, not the texture of his hair or the color of his skin, but his eternal dignity and worth. And so the Negro could now unconsciously cry out with the eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Were I so tall as to reach the pole or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. With this new sense of dignity and this new sense of self-respect, a new Negro came into being with a determination to suffer, to struggle, to sacrifice in order to be free. You are listening to Bridging the Gap radio show with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon coming to you live from Columbia, South Carolina, bringing you hard hitting topics, leaders in the community, businessmen and women and faith leaders that are making a difference. If you're a bridge builder, and you would love to get your story heard on this network, Never Had It So Good Gospel 107 FM and Never Had It So Good Sports Network, contact us at hjvharmon at gmail.com or kingdombookinggift at gmail.com or sclovefellowship at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, on this Martin Luther King weekend special edition of Bridging the Gap. We just listened to excerpts from the speech which, you know, the Internet is entitled Creative Maladjustment of Martin Luther King speaking on April 27th, 1965, on the campus of University of California, L.A., UCLA. And he talked about a number of things in his speech. He lifted up a number of themes, um, some that are common, some that are obvious. He talked about, he asked the question, are we making real progress in real relations? That's a question we're still asking in 2022. After having gone through all that we went through in 2021 with the major cases, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the marches that occurred between 2019 and now, um, the question of the failure of integration was raised in that speech. And he gave us a history lesson. He says, 1619, the first slaves landed on these shores and they were brought here not of their own volition and not of their own will and not because of desire to be here, but they came here against their wills. he said that them being brought here against their wills just, you know, was a, a sequence, began the sequence of how African and people of African descent were viewed in America. They were 
um, viewed as property, not as citizens, but as property. Um, and he lifted an argument raised in Plessy versus Ferguson, where uh, the, the Supreme Court of the United States literally said the Negro has no rights that the white man is obligated to obey or grant or heed. And um, he, he talked about in his speech about how the church was complicit in racism, complicit in the discrimination that slaves endured, complicit in the horror and the tragedy of slavery, um, how the church would use um, scriptures in such a way as to affirm what was the going narrative concerning the lack of citizenry and, and humanity in slaves, but the fact that they were mere property. Um, and and I, I believe that, you know, even in 2022, these are some challenges that the church, the body of Christ is following, is, is facing even today. Um, after the presidency of Donald Trump, when the evangelical church took a major lead, a major role in him coming to power and in him being uh, affirmed and and celebrated and even lauded as a savior for the church. Um, I'm talking about Donald Trump. Um, we can see why in 2022, this, this speech, this um, discourse is still relevant, even to our times when the church of Jesus Christ or, or, the, or the church of Jesus Christ in America has decided that it's going to take sides politically and a side that um, was anti-black in many time in many senses and discriminatory. Um, he talked about Aristot Arist Aristotle's syllogism and how, uh, as a result of slavery, as a result of the diminishment of people of color, there was developed a philosophy that because um, God was not black, that ultimately black people weren't, um, as, as I would say, black people weren't uh, human beings because God wasn't a human being. Um, and, and the Bible says that God made man his image and after his likeness. And since God certainly isn't black, then human being, then black people certainly can't be human beings. Um, it's unfortunate that our society came to that place, got to that place with the view of people of color, but that's where we are. Even among the African-American community, we have the challenge of colorism. Um, he talked about it with the young people in the first um, excerpt from Life's Blueprint but in this particular one, he raised it again, the whole issue of colorism, even in the black community where people of a lighter complexion were actually lauded and honored and respected and revered and people of a darker complexion were not. Um, and, and, and I say were sparingly because unfortunately, even in our communities of today and among our young people today, it is still, colorism is still a, a thing that 
causes bullying and and colorism is a thing that 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 has young people considering suicide because they don't fit in they don't they don't add up to what society and and contemporary culture has deemed to be beautiful um has deemed to be attractive and because of the darker hue of their skin and so we're still fighting an uphill battle in that vein and for Martin Luther King to raise this in the 60s and for us to be in 2022 still dealing with that among our communities where people are still going out and and caking themselves with makeup so much and so and putting on wigs and hair pieces so that they hear the texture they hear appears to be European or or putting on makeup so that their skin text, skin color, and complexion appears to be much lighter than it really is. And, and just all of those issues that are vestiges of the uh, horror of slavery, the diminishment of the lives and the character and the dignity of people of color, for us to now be years removed from slavery and still within our own communities fighting these types of battles. It is a shame. It is um, a, a horror. And it is, you know, unfortunate that we're there right now. Um, but those are some of the things that Dr. Martin Luther King raised. Those were some of the uh, some of the, um, the ideas that he um, focused on. And I think that, that they're important because um, as I said before, we're still dealing with that, with that in our society. We're still dealing with young people um, going to school and, you know, being made fun of because their, their skin is got a little more melanin than the general population, um, when we should be in a place where we are proud, where we are, where we value our melanin, where we are celebrating our melanin, where we are, we are, are, are comfortable with our wide-brimmed noses, where we are comfortable with our thick lips, and and all the other things that are characteristic of people of color, people that are descendant from those that came from Africa. Um, it is unfortunate that we are in that place in this season, but as with this show, Bridging the Gap, with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, I am intentional about raising these kinds of issues, talking about these kinds of things. I'm going to have, try to get some experts on, some educators on in the near future to talk about the challenges that young people face going to school um, and dealing with some of these things that we've talked about. Um, it's unfortunate, again, that we are in 2022. We're in a new decade. We're in a new time. And this stuff that is um, the leftovers from slavery, the leftovers from Jim Crow, the leftovers from the civil rights struggle when dogs and water hoses were sicked on our people, for us to come to this point and not have enough dignity love for ourselves, not see ourselves as beautiful because we're black and therefore emulating and trying to be like somebody else. And if somebody, um, unfortunately, unfortunately is born with features that 
kicked back to Africa, they are somehow held in derision and laughed at and joked about. Um, again, you're listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. Today, it's not, you know, it, it's a, a grave, it's a deep, it's a serious conversation. I want us to really think about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, what he's left behind, what he tried to achieve when he was here, and what we need to do to make sure that what he attempted to achieve when he was alive and when he was here does not come to naught. Um, we're going to have a third video, a third recording, rather, we're going to listen to. And this one is called A New Phase of the Civil Rights Struggle. This is literally an interview he had, I believe, with NBC 11, 11 months before his death. This is um, one of those pieces of footage that is not widely known, hasn't been widely heard so I play a little bit more of it than the other clips because I think it's interesting to hear his take. Um, it's coming from the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, where his father was pastor and he had been called to be assistant pastor. But he's speaking from the steps of Ebenezer Baptist Church about the new phase of the civil rights struggle. And this is literally 11 months before he was assassinated in Memphis. Take a listen. Dr. King, this church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement. When you went out from here in the university and then you went to Montgomery, Alabama and started the bus boycotts there, what was the philosophy of the civil rights movement as you saw it then more than 10 years ago? Well, I would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Now, of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Dr. King, was there something peculiar to the place where you started and the kind of people you attracted? I mean by that, there was a strong attachment on the part of your parishioners in Montgomery to the church. They were older people, weren't they? Yes, I would say by and large, they were older people who uh, participated in the boycott because they were the ones using the bus, bus more than anybody else. And uh, Montgomery was a community, predominantly church senate, uh, so that uh, it was very easy to get to the vast majority of Negroes because they were in some way connected with a church in the community. Was there, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do, the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence? It was the only device open to you, wasn't it? Well, I'll put it another way, that uh, <clears throat> morally, I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best 
moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then, and it is my feeling now, that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive, and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now, there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States, for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, it would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one-tenth or one percent of the firepower. So it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning, and uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was the morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country. Is there something about nonviolence that made it, and I use that in the past tense, that made it more useful among Southern Negroes than the ghetto Negroes of the North? I wouldn't say there's uh, anything that makes it more useful to uh, Southern Negroes. I think it is true that uh, we've had more nonviolent movements in the South because uh, the problem for many years was more crystallized and, in a sense, more visible in the South. Uh, we didn't have many civil rights activities on a massive scale in the North until three or four years ago. So I would say that uh, we just haven't had a chance to experiment on a broad scale with nonviolence in the northern ghetto. I have the feeling that nonviolence is as applicable uh, and workable in the northern ghetto as it is uh, in the south. Uh, there's a larger job there. Uh, the frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the South, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible, and every Southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Wherein in the North, uh, the Negro sees only retrogress, uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win. And it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. In the South, particularly in Alabama, you had visible villains, Jim Clark, Bull Connor cattle prods, police dogs. But in the North, you don't have those visible villains. Isn't it hard to get your people aroused and directed at something that isn't visible? Well, that's exactly right. And this is what I was saying when I said it's harder to see your target. Uh, in the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always on the whole by the brutality of our opponent. Uh, it isn't the same way in the 
Uh, north. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing, but uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's, uh, it's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers, but I still feel that uh, Negroes in the North can be motivated just as they were motivated in the South. And I think as time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the Negro community, it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general, but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situation. Well, what is it? I mean, how do you find it? Uh, it's very subtle in the North, is it not? It's subtle, but it's um, becoming much more visible. Uh, it, uh, anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions. Uh, people don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay uh, more for less and constantly trying to make ends meet, but because of either no job as a result of unemployment, uh, a job that is so uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet. And I think they see all of these things, and more and more they're coming to see them. Because before, the people of the North were looking to the South, and they supported the struggles of the South. Now they're coming to see that their problems are very real, and they've got organized to grapple with them. You are tuned in to the special edition, to this special edition of Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, as we take this Martin Luther King weekend to uh, celebrate, commemorate, to honor, to look back, to listen, to unpack the man, the myth, and the movement we know as Martin Luther King Jr. You were just listening to an excerpt from an interview given at Ebenezer Baptist Church just 11 months before his ultimate demise by, by an assassin's bullet in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, here, he's talking about the new phase of the civil rights struggle. Again, an interview that he had with NBC. And in that interview, he was asked, what was the philosophy of the civil rights movement? Um, and he articulately explained and explicated that it was the fight, the all-out fight legally and nonviolently to um, obtain full rights and equality for people of color. Uh, he went in um, and at length to talk about why he felt non, the nonviolent approach was the best approach, was the appropriate approach, and was the approach he, he chose 
to uh, tackle those problems. He also expressed the fact that he understood that in other parts of the United States, people of color were not resorting to nonviolence, but they were actually resorting to violence. But he stayed the course with saying that violence in his belief was socially destructive and that violence in his purview was not practically sound given the position in which African-Americans were in back in the 60s where they constituted 11% of the population and ultimately didn't have the firepower instrumentation or the techniques to really wage a violent um, overtake of the government or violent um, arresting and, and, and resting of their powers to vote and, and, and the such. And this brings us to what we experienced just last year, 2021, January 6th, when groups of Americans, largely white Americans, largely supporters of Donald Trump, um, some claiming to be Christians, many of who, if you heard their rhetoric, um, would probably be deemed anti-Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Um, but these people with weaponry and with um, numbers stormed the Capitol building of the United States. We're still dealing with the residue of that storming of our Capitol, um, such and so that the media coverage of it around the world showed America as the laughingstock of the modern world. Um, and it shows us and it kind of echoes what Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about in his in this particular interview, because those people that stormed the Capitol chose violence. They chose violence because they did not want to um, rest in and believe and take the election results as they had come. They thought that if they resorted to violence, they could somehow reverse what had happened on election day. Um, but we know that is not the case. We know that was, was not what happened, the eventual outcome of it all, but that Donald Trump lost the election. He lost it uh, tremendously. He not only lost the popular vote, he lost the electoral college vote. Um, there were a number of recounts of, of certain states' ballots um, some of those recounts, at, most of those recounts came back with the same results. Some of them came back with Donald Trump losing even more. Um, so, you know, not this is not about Donald Trump. This is actually about Martin Luther King. This tribute day is about Dr. Martin Luther King, but it's talking. But I wanted to counter those two experiences. People storming our Capitol on January 5th, I believe it is. 2021, January 6, 2021, um, hoping that violence would be the way, the answer, the solution to the problem that they saw that they faced. And Martin Luther King said, you know, violence just breeds social destruction. Violence breeds more violence. And, and he didn't see it as the solution. And I, and, and I want to piggyback that and say, you know, in our city right now, Columbia, South Carolina, where I reside, where I dwell, where I call home, 
where this show is coming from right now. Um, we've been dealing in our inner city, um, what is called North Columbia, Central Columbia, with the issue of violence, um, violence uh, between street gangs, violence between drug operations, I believe, violence just among young people who are at a point where they, um, in some in some ways and in some shapes and in some forms, feel helpless and hopeless that they have been abandoned by society. There, there aren't jobs available for them. They aren't skilled to get jobs if there are jobs available. And they have just been left to be negligent and, and deal with the consequences of that negligence. And as a result, we have a rise in violence, a rise in deaths, a rise in murders, a rise in crimes in our, um, in our metro area. And that's unfortunate um, with politicians, you know, wagging their tongues, talking about being strong on crime and and being um, strong on this and strong on that. And at the end of the day, um, it turns out just to be political rhetoric because some of these politicians have been in office for several years and the problem has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. Um, they've been involved with all of these initiatives and campaigns and projects and, and, and collectives and collaboratives with law enforcement. And yet and still we see a rise in crime, a rise in deaths, a, ri a rise in communities that are just becoming dangerous to live in. And I just want to be a voice of reason. Um, we as, as, as a, presenter on this show, as a pastor of a church, as a leader of young people in our ministry, I, I implore the other pastors out there, other leaders out there, all, other community activists out there to not just spend time talking about what's wrong, but let's spend some time working on solutions. Let's spend some time collaborating together on ways that we can really put a stop to all that's going on around us. Most of us are rubbing shoulders um, with the very people that are seen as a problem, are seen as an issue. And that may be the problem and that may be the issue. And us just turning our noses up at them, walking in the other direction, making sure our families are safe, putting up security cameras and, and alarms and, and fences around our homes and, and, Putting and, and making sure we have community patrols, that's helping us to be safe. But what about those who don't have the resources and the means and the opportunity to move like we are able to move? And those that just have to live where they have to live. Um, Martin Luther King, you're looking at him throughout these or listen to him throughout these excerpts. You may not be able to see him because this is a radio show, but listening to him, take some time after you finish watching this show today or listening to this show today, rather. I want to take some time, just go on YouTube and, and pull up some of his old recordings, some of his speeches, some of his interviews and look at the man, see the commitment that he put into making life better for people that he will never meet never encounter, never see, not just for his own children, but for us who were surrogate children of his. Um, 
I implore you to do that. I encourage you to do that. Just encourage yourself so that you can get some motivation and initiative to go out there and make a difference in your own community. You're listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. Today, we are doing a special tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. This weekend It's called Martin Luther King Jr.'s Weekend. Usually, there is uh, a walk to the dome here in Columbia, South Carolina, but because of COVID-19, I believe that event is virtual this year, as many of the events around the Midlands and around the state of South Carolina are virtual and probably around the country because of the rise of Omicron variant and Delta variant and just the rise of of COVID-19 infections. Um, We pray that we will be beyond this shortly. But while we're here, let's not forget about the wider struggle, the greater struggle, the things that even COVID-19 revealed to us that we have a long way to go with regards to the technological divide that exists among our communities where people of means are technologically more advanced than people of less means. People are, and, and usually the people of less means are people of color. Um, that's just the reality of it. Um, just because we have an iPhone, which is a, a late model iPhone, that doesn't mean you have the other technology in your home that would allow you to um, transition your job from going to work and dealing with COVID infections and 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 unsanitized ear and decide I'm going to work from home. Not everybody has that option. Not everybody has that privilege to do those things because not every home is wired with Wi-Fi. Not everybody has the just the technology available and to do those kinds of things. And so we've got to figure out a way where we, let's get to the tables. Let's get to some tables where some solutions are being found. Let's get to some tables where we can put our hands to the plow, where we can be helpful, where we can contribute in some way, shape or form. Like Dr. Martin Luther King said early on in the speech, we have to have a deep belief in our own dignity, in our own worth, in our own somebodyness. And this struggle, this fight for equality, this fight for all of us to the haves and the have nots to come for that line to be drawn a little closer between the haves and the have nots and for the haves to to get a heart of sharing and caring, compassion and sympathy for the have nots and vice versa requires that we get to the table, requires that we develop this deep belief in our own dignity, in our own worth, and in our own somebodyness. And when we all feel that way, then we'll all care about each other. I want to leave with you this final soundbite, final soundbite of a speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave in 1967 in California at Stanford University. And the title of the speech is The Other America. The Other America. Not going to listen to the entire speech, but that's what we're going to end with today for this special tribute edition of Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. We'll be back next week. We're going to have a special guest. We're going to have an interview with that special guest, and we're going to continue to encourage you for this new year, 2022, that this is yet going to be the best year of your life. But take a listen to Martin Luther King as he spoke to Stanford University in 1967 about the other America.
I'd like to use as a subject from which to speak this afternoon, the other America. And I use this subject because there are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation. And in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity. This America is a habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture and education for their minds, freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. In this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. And this other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds of inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. And as we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. America, some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, some uh, happen to be from other groups, millions of them are Appalachian whites. Probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size in the population is the American Negro. American Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto 
is to deal with this problem, to deal with this problem of the two Americas. We are seeking to make America one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now let me say that the struggle for civil rights is the struggle to make these two Americas one America is much more difficult today than it was five or ten years ago. For about a decade or maybe twelve years, we struggled all across the South in glorious struggles to get rid of legal, overt segregation and all of the humiliation that surrounded that system of segregation. In a sense, this was a struggle for decency. We could not go to a lunch counter in so many instances and get a hamburger or a cup of coffee. We could not make use of public accommodations. Public transportation was segregated. And often we had to sit in the back and within transportation, uh, transportation within cities, we often had to stand over empty seats because sections were reserved for whites only. We did not have the right to vote in so many areas of the South. And the struggle was to deal with these problems. Now certainly they were difficult problems, they were humiliating conditions. By the thousands, we protested these conditions. We made it clear that it was ultimately more honorable to accept jail cell experiences than to accept segregation and humiliation. By the thousand students and adults decided to sit in at segregated lunch counters to protest conditions there. When they were sitting at those lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and seeking to take the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Many things were gained as a result of these years of struggle. In 1964, the Civil Rights Bill came into being after the Birmingham Movement, which did a great deal to subpoena the conscience of a large segment of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. After the Selma movement in 1965, we were able to get a voting rights bill. All of these things represented strife. But we must see that the struggle today is much more difficult. It's more difficult today because we are struggling now for genuine equality. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee a livable income and a good, solid job. 
It's much easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee the right to live in sanitary, decent housing conditions. It is much easier to integrate a public park than it is to make genuine, quality, integrated education a reality. And so today, we are struggling for something which says we demand genuine equality not merely a struggle against extremist behavior toward Negroes. And I'm convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in a very difficult and painful way in Chicago over the last year where I've lived and worked. Some of the people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham were active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark toward Negroes rather than believing in genuine equality for Negroes. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, featured here weekly on Never Had It So Good Sports Network, a Columbia-based show with global impact. Thank you again for listening to us, to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. We are a Columbia-based show, but we believe we have a global impact. Thank you, Bridge Builders. We look forward to seeing you next week.